companions. We help you discover your many layers. You peel your car, you wake up with fresh eyes. Question life, question humanity, question society, but most of all, question yourself. Hi, Lynn. Welcome on this podcast. Could you kick us off with a short, quick uh, little introduction of yourself? Love to. And hello, wherever you are in this world, and thank you for you. I'm an accidental educator. By that, I mean I never set out in life to to do anything in terms of education. When I was young, I did a lot of arts, of course, performing arts, basically, for fun in school. And then when I grew older, I did literature, um, novels, poetry, drama, and I love being inside other people's worlds instead of my own world. I never wanted to be myself. I didn't even like myself very much. Um, and then one day when I was in my 30s, I think that was mid-30s, suddenly dawned on me that, you know, I have a mind. What can I do with it? Aside from dream, fanciful dreams of walking up to the altar with a prince on a white horse, etc., etc. You get the picture. Um, and then suddenly I was looking at my nieces and nephews' homework, seriously, from school, and they used to go to local schools in Hong Kong, so they learned both Chinese and English. And I was just flipping through their homework, and I was seeing a lot of crosses and crosses and crosses and maybe one tick now and then. And I was looking at the answers, and I thought, that's a pretty good answer. What's wrong with that answer? And I looked, and I continued to look, uh, to look and I realized that although I thought, and I might still be wrong, that the answer was perfectly acceptable. Obviously, the teacher didn't think so. So really, that started me thinking about learning. Why is it wrong? Why is it there's only ever one answer to everything? And why is it always the teacher's answer, which is the only correct answer? Um, from that time on, I suddenly realized I needed to look at the education system, and so I did the system in primary school in Hong Kong. Then I went through the, the secondary school system and the curriculum in Hong Kong. And by the time a few months went by, I was looking at the entire education system, and I thought, okay, there's something here that doesn't quite fit into what, at least my own small understanding of education, and in terms of how the world was changing. It was then seriously that I sat up and thought, okay, I really have to do something about it. And uh, my first foray into education was, um, oddly enough, summer school spent at Harvard. At um, the Graduate School of Education, they had a uh, summer school organized by Project Zero, which is really all about the arts, and they are far ahead in terms of research. Little did I know I wanted to be in education then. I was still in a host of different jobs. But that summer really changed me, and literally, I know people say a lot of these things, but it's not true. So after that summer, I decided, okay, enough of what I'm doing at the moment. And at that point in time, I was a simultaneous interpreter. Um, therefore, stressful job but very well paid job so it was when I was 37 that I told my friends much to their horror that I'm giving up a very well paid job and um, to change the arts into my career and to look at the arts and education so that was basically how I started years and years ago <laughs> 
Wow, that sounds like uh, you were really pioneering something at that point because you were you were in your own little ways trying to change the education system bottom up and and change what um, teaching and learning is for 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 youths uh, and children. So, what was it? What was it like in Hong Kong? You know, were were the arts uh, something that people appreciated, valued, and would pay for? Um, how was it when you first started this work? Okay, um, I think we have two two sides of a coin here, the arts sector and the education sector. So uh, 30 years ago, compared with now, there definitely were fewer performances and exhibitions. Now you have a festival every other weekend. There's so many of them. Where do you go? When do you go? Um, connected to that is the education system, which basically in a lot of advanced cities and countries all started with the industrial revolution model. In other words, it's mass manufacturing. So um, same template, same results, same step-by-step -step, um, process, which in education is called the modernist paradigm, but never mind these words. We can call it the traditional education system, which I assume that uh, you, you yourself myself and probably a lot of listeners um, recognize this. So it's about replication. Um, if you look at the education sector for say like that and the art sector, you at first will not see the interconnection because people will think arts is the arts. You just go and perform or you, you go and learn how to dance and sing and, um, and act. But then over time, I realize um, there is correlation. Because if in the traditional education system, you prefer people to think in a linear fashion, coming up with one answer or, well, one or two answers, then forever they will be dependent on older professionals, teachers or parents or guardians to help you find your way or worse, indicate that that is the way you must go. And because of this in education, I think it has a an invisible impact on the arts. So in the arts have been performing, performing, performing. And in these last two, three decades, mainly theater equals musicals. So people think that theater is only musical and nothing else. And therefore supply and demand keeps on going round and round and round in this sort of circle. Um, and I still feel that although in Hong Kong, there is huge diversity, um, when people first encounter the arts, they still tend to go for what is the known, the familiar, and what they can understand immediately. Now, tracking back to education again, you think, well, education, what do you think it's really about? Really just getting the facts and the knowledge? Does it work? Or is there something more to it? So that's why in my um, charity, one of our legs, firmly in the arts, the other firmly in education, because this kind of toggling and interconnection makes it for fascinating work. Could you, so your, your organization is called FTEC. Could you share with yeah. us the acronyms? Oh, okay. Um, actually, it's called the Absolutely Fabulous Theatre Connection. When we coined it uh, 14, 15 years ago, we did not know about the uh, US TV series. Absolutely fabulous. Subsequently, a lot of people asked me about it. And I said, no, we were just actually pulling our own leg, you know, to, uh, to say that we're absolutely fabulous. And you really have to 
try and live up to it, no matter how much you fail. So AFTEC, that's an acronym. But beyond that, um, it also has another layer, which actually is the philosophy of what we do, which is arts for transformative educational change. And this is exactly what we hope to achieve um, in the years that we have been in Hong Kong and in the years that we will be here doing our things. So I think one acronym will tell you all about what we do. We've heard the uh, symptoms and the context and, and the issues in Hong Kong's education system. Could you give some examples on how um, AFTEC creates this sort of arts for transformative educational change? What were the pointers or metrics that you looked at? Sure. And um, this is all related to the preamble, the context of arts and, and, and education, because over the years, especially since the year 2000, when the um, then Education and Manpower Bureau did an overall education reform uh, with a 10-year uh, timeline and a framework, etc., etc. Um, for, for the first time, it actually looked deeply into the arts and introduced it as a key learning area. Because in a lot of Asian societies, and uh, um, a lot of you would know this, in Hong Kong, it would be languages that are important, Chinese, English, mathematics, of course. And if you're deemed good in these subjects, then you're academically inclined, you're brilliant, blah, 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 um, etc. And for the first time, therefore, in 2000, the Arts Education Key Learning Area, AEKLA, was put forward. Um, detailing how music and visual arts, because that's what's in schools, uh, the curriculum framework, the kind of teaching context, the assessment to be done, the overall guideline was there. So when this started, um, I think a lot of us looked at it with, uh, with much anticipation. No policy is foolproof, no policy is perfect because policy writing, arduous as it is, is really the basic theory. The proof is in the pudding. So how do you implement um, creativity? How do you implement critical thinking through the arts? How do you implement being communicative or collaborative in the arts? The four words are everywhere. In the 21st century uh, challenges, these four words are not panacea, but, but they are very important. So that, is how we started AFTEC um, in 2008. So with my background by then, um, also in education, we decided to look at how the arts and education could be put together, not simply for arts education, uh, but also for the arts in education. So the properties of the arts, like giving voice, testing ideas, encouraging reflection, um, seeing from different perspectives, understanding deeply, how can these constructs actually transfer, if at all, over to education? So in 2008, there was a report by Sir Brian McMaster from the UK. He was commissioned by, I think, the Secretary of State in the UK to review uh, the arts in the UK um, and of that, in that report, I think it was on page 18, I'm not quite, quite sure. One sentence really stood out for me. And the sentence was, and I'm paraphrasing, that too many in the performing arts 
are focused on the surface level of performing and not looking at the impact that the arts have. I'm definitely paraphrasing here. Uh, and that has stuck with me ever, ever since that, yes, I mean, we have a theater um, as a venue partner. Obviously, I could become a producing theater and even through theater productions, we can teach, right? But our artistic director, Vicky, and I sat down to think, um, no, I don't think we simply, uh, no, we don't want to be a producing theater. How do we marry the arts and education? So I give, I'm giving a lot of context because I think the background is important. It was also a huge risk because nobody was doing that at that time. I had to go and look for sponsorship, right? And so how do you explain all this thing to people, what you're doing? Nope, you're not really doing uh, theatre production. In addition to the theatre production, you're hoping there would be critical thinking. Um, so the first year I told my board, literally, when you asked me about metrics, I said, definitely we will be in the red this year, the first year at least, because we have no track record. People haven't seen our work. They don't know what we're up to. So please, if you want to get rid of me, tell me now, because I'm not going to even break even for you. <laughs> so nice as they were, they said, okay, okay, go in the red for a year, but no more than a year. And, and that did happen. Um, but because that happened, we had the opportunity to build longer-term projects. For example, um, there's one particular theatre production uh, project called From Page to Stage. So literally, we take novels, and the artistic director will adapt it to become an hour-long show. Uh, we're now in our 14th, if not 15th round, in fact. And when we first started, it was three shows. Our, our um, Presidium March Theatre seats about 460. Uh, so three shows would give you just under 1,500. And we filled probably about 30% because what we wanted to do was to bring schools in, that secondary schools, into a professional theatre environment. We could, of course, take two sticks and a piece of cloth you know, and travel. There's nothing wrong with that, except we thought they've got to experience the magic of theatre. They've got to feel it and get goosebumps. Um, I doubt if I can manage goosebumps with two sticks and a piece of cloth. So when we first started, schools had to bust their kids in, and we didn't just want them to come and see a show, au revoir, goodbye, arrivederci. We wanted to put learning in it. So the entire thing, it, we started in 2009, was totally experimental. How could we create learning materials that were not worksheets? Everybody was sick and tired of worksheets. How do we get them to engage with the artists on stage after the show, not just for fun and games, but probably uh, learning certain skills backstage, for a while, how do we get the audience to 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 act as a chorus as they were seated in the auditorium? Uh, we call this karaoke drama, by the way, because we still actually do this. Um, and so everybody takes on a bit of a script, which is on subtitles machine, um, and they become part of a part of the show. So when we first started, our ticket sales were dismal, um, and this I'm telling you because. This is the only project in, work, in which we work with huge numbers. 
and I'll explain why later. So by pre-COVID, pre-COVID, we reached 30 shows with 12 to 13,000 um, young people and teachers coming in, which for a small city like Hong Kong, it's probably a very long-running theatre and education program. The formula has stayed, not because it's perfect, but because this is entry level. So we call this level one. And therefore, the metrics are huge, right? As long as you bring the numbers in, the sponsor is happy. And this is the only project in which we go to that scale. Because as, as time went by, we were interested in other metrics. Um, for example, how deep can we push learning through the arts? Um, how many can we actually accommodate? Not 12,000, it's impossible. With the 12,000, uh, it was about 104 schools by then. Um, we had artists going into schools pre and post production to actually talk to, to young people about it, uh, about what they saw, what they thought, how did you feel, but that was really basic. So in 2012, yeah, with some experience under our belt, we managed to persuade two sponsors or two collaborators. Um, one is actually the medical faculty at the University of Hong Kong. Um, I wrote to them and I said, look, the arts are really not for people who love to dance and sing. The arts really connect with a person's humanity, which in the very efficient and economically buoyant Hong Kong, nobody quite thinks enough about. So I wrote to them, I said, look, we should actually be thinking of working together. This is my idea. And it was totally fortuitous, totally, that at the same time, the faculty was planning the medical humanities program, um, which is credit bearing as well. So instead of four modules, they included performing arts as a fifth module. So since 2012, we have been working with year one and year two medical undergraduates in during school hours, um, taking them through drama workshops, music workshops, um, experiential anatomy workshops in which drama and music and movement is included. This The metrics for evaluation is simple. It's basically in-class assessment. How well are you connecting, performing, relating according to the theme? and subsequently a reflection with three key questions because I, we have to know what impact. Although it was only one workshop per student per year, it was really better than nothing. So in the first year we had about 200 students go through the system and then it started growing as they moved up the years, um, 12 years now, I've lost track of how many. Um, and it was a very interesting journey because these are top A-level students with top, top, top grades who have spent most of their young lives trying to get into medical school. So imagine the scene when three artists would walk into that room. You can imagine what they, how they looked at us. Um, and I'm not being rude here because it is a totally different world. Yeah. These are scientists. 
Yeah. <laughs> and we are cloud nine artists, probably with three heads and <laughs> six arms. And we speak the same language, but nobody understands what we're saying. So <laughs> the first two to three years was a total uphill battle. Our, our scores um, across Magical Humanities mod modules, as you can imagine, were very, the lowest <laughs> for the first few years. Nobody knew what we were doing. But the ice had to be broken, and this was so fascinating. I was teaching myself um, at that time because with every new program, I do teach. Um, and I was very sorry to see that 17 to 18-year-olds had no understanding of their bodies. They were all brains. Mm. They were extremely clever. You ask them any question and they would give you an answer that was as deep as it was um, carefully thought out. But get them moving without being sat behind tables and chairs. And they were kids. They, they, there's one game in which they had to move around the whole space of the large room. And year after year, with this first game, they all behave like tuna balls in the sea. You know, when tunas swim in a whole shoal, I think it's called, school. Certainly not balls. <laughs> um, and, you know, the musician and, and I was just totally fascinated how we got, how we, how education in the past 16 years of their lives, ended up with these young people who are so intellectually bright that they were so fearful of space. It was really very sad. We were very shocked, but we were very sad. But anyway, um, to cut a very long story short, uh, this is still ongoing. There's been various twiddling and changes to the curriculum. Uh, we we had to move on to more practical things like drama for communication. But during COVID, we we looked at um, empowerment, the self, how even over Zoom, my poor tutors had to teach movement through Zoom. It was an impossible task. So um, it's been 12 12 years now, definitely. So this is still ongoing, and that's how it, it, it's measured. What were some of the outcomes um, from from that um, project? Um, well, the fact that it's still there. After <laughs> <laughs> 12 years, <clears throat> I think it's a small success in itself. Because the medical humanities only um, are for year one and year two students. Ah, in year three now, um, Hong Kong U students take off literally into society they have no further classes it's called an enrichment year so what they do is both locally and abroad they can do exactly what they apply for not necessarily in terms of medicine but in in charities and ngos so some of them get to medicine sans frontier uh some of them go to africa some of them stay in hong kong um i think three years of this uh, we don't get to do year three of course um, has given a lot of students the viewpoint that there is more to life than your medical books. Mm. That as a doctor, you're not there staring at your patient who is a lump of disease waiting to be cured. That there 
the other person is flesh and blood like you, although you are wearing the white coat, that you have your stress and stresses and strains and really low moments like your patients. So in year one, we dealt with the person behind the white coat. In year two, we dealt with healing and suffering. And I think um, this kind of consciousness and awareness that you are human, I know this sounds really silly, um, is recognized. We're so efficient a city in Hong Kong that sometimes we become working machines and studying machines. And especially given the complexity of, of, of the 21st century, you really have to start thinking for more, more humanitarian aspect. Mm. So that's a whole purpose. And I think um, if not all students believe in this, I think some of them will. I don't have final figures because yes. uh, there are five modules in the medical humanities and we only look after one. But I'm sure this must have been really impactful. I mean, Singapore and Hong Kong have really similar context and uh, I can tell yes. that this would have been really impactful for, for those students as well. And I have to just point out that um, so a lot of people ask um, when you know through through the work that I'm doing through INSEP, you know how do you how do you get funding? How do you how do you sustain these works? And a lot of times it's like you know the work that you're doing, which is pioneering something where nobody knows what you're talking about. And I thought it was so courageous and creative of you to find out something that is completely of a different sector and put the context of the arts into it and see find a way of connection in which that could be applied um, to figure out where the gaps are and where the arts could contribute, which is in the sort of human to human connection and, and empathy um, component. And your process is also very similar um, to startup journeys, you know, when they when they pitch to companies or organizations or schools to get certain procurement or, or work. Um, often this is what they have to go through, you know, they have to go and convince people and they have to knock on doors. And it's not a comfortable process or journey because nobody has done this kind of work before. You're paving the path. There is no one to follow and there are no examples and nobody knows about you because there, there is no, um, some, there, there are no case studies of things that have been done before. So then it's like this really uncomfortable and unfamiliar space where you go in and everyone's looking at you expecting to hear something and judging you and you're like maybe I don't really know what I'm gonna do because I've not tried it out yet but I'm just gonna you know smile and be confident and make it till I break it <laughs> yes exactly uh absolutely totally you're completely right but then what's the point of the arts if you don't step out of your comfort zone seriously it never gets any better, mind you. It <laughs> never gets any better. I'm sorry that you have to hear this from somebody <laughs> with so many years of experience. But that's the reason you get up in the morning. You think, okay, I didn't do too well in this yesterday. What else can I do mm. with this? So the medical humanity thing, if it could be further ingrained in the curriculum, of course it would be better. But they are medical students and you know the tomes and tomes that they have to memorize i understand why they can't go beyond this but at least hopefully something a spark has been planted in their heads for it to change so mm. that was 2012 with the first foray into a non-art sector um another project uh, called smart youth that that went on for eight years it 
COVID ended, <laughs> basically. So that we looked at um, underprivileged kids. Um, the definition of this in Hong Kong in general is economic poverty and low social economic status. Uh, we, took, we looked at that and we took it another way. By visiting classrooms and schools, we saw a lot of really obedient kids sandwiched between their desks and their chairs, um, listening intently to their teachers. You could see that they were physically there, but you could also see that they were physically uh, mentally absent, some of them, you know, glazed over the look <laughs> that you and I have sometimes, uh, let alone what are they feeling? Is there kind of, is there any spiritual being? I don't mean religious spiritual. I mean, the sense of being a person. So that's how we reversed the situation and looked at this. And eventually, you know, we realized that poverty of the imagination is even worse than economic poverty. And the way to support and hope that these young children as as, as young as nine would be able to break through poverty is is to take a biblical image not to feed them fish but to teach them how to fish so in 2012 we went into one school only um and decided let's try to wake them up let's try to motivate them so one school all very underprivileged economically and also family backgrounds right so most of them didn't have two parents if, if they had a single parent that was already good many of them were looked up by guardians who might be grandparents or even cousins um therefore the family situation was not good added on to the fact that economic they were economically deprived and they traveled literally every day between their homes public housing estate and their school most of them walked some of them would take the mtr they had never even been over to Hong Kong Island. They have never been to see the Central Business District. So we incorporated cultural outings five times a year. We decided we had to focus on getting them not to replicate each other. I don't know if this happens in other cities and countries in the world, but a lot of the time it's because they're only about rote learning. If you ask them for their opinion, they would 99% of the time say, I don't know. So we had to break that. And we decided asking questions nonstop and actually telling them that there's no right and wrong answer over and over again for the three years that they were with us, that you will not be laughed at. It's, if somebody laughed at you, we will be dealing with that person. So it took about six to nine months to, to gain their trust, after which um, they could sit on their chairs, they could sit on the floor, they could sit on the table, they could lie on the, the couch, whatever. And over time, that's why it was a three-year, three-year, three-year rolling project. They gained, and we gained their trust, and they opened up. And it was only then when, when they would start answering questions, daring to give their own answers. I mean, six months to nine months, if we had started a lot earlier in kindergarten with this, the kids would have gone so much further. And therefore, sometimes it's this kind of um, irritation that also gets me going. Right? <laughs> so um, this smart youth project, when we took them out, even on a tram, 
been on the track, you would see them light up and then you would have conversations with them afterwards. We took them to ballets in which some of them fell asleep because it was nice and cold and and they found it boring, especially the boys, and they couldn't understand why full-grown men were in tights. Um, they spoke to dancers. Uh, we invited parents. The parents would say, God, I had a good snooze, never been to a concert. But I thought this is very different. And we brought the parents in for discussion three times a year, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So that some of our question-asking habits, uh, the parents would try and emulate. Um, to what ability they could. And it was those eight years until 2020, or in fact, three years down the road, we, we already saw change. But we, we were only beginning to systematize something. Uh, the metrics, basically, you were asking about metrics. Uh, two things. Each child was given a bottle. Uh, in each class, would have an assortment of colored beads, any colors you know, red, yellow, green, blue, five type colors. And each class would decide at the outset what the color, what emotions the, the, the beads represented. So with different classes, you know, red might be anger or red might be joy. And, and, and during that class, they would start filling the bottles. So that if you're a nine-year-old, 10-year-old, not used to expressing yourself, by the end of the class, at least we could tell, oh my God, Johnny totally has black marbles. <laughs> uh, he's not having a very good day, is he? So this is a very unscientific, informal way of allowing young children to express themselves beyond words. Some of them just can't express who I am. Um, one story, in fact, was there was this young boy who kept on choosing pink and scintillating things, whatever we did in class. And eventually, at the tender age of 10, he realized he was gay. Um, he did not know the implications. And he openly told his friends, mixed girls and boys, that he liked skirts and everything. And of course, that was completely disastrous because people would simply laugh at him. But we saw him actually come out with himself. Um, and therefore, we were able to speak to the teacher, the social worker, the head teachers to say, look, he's going to be in a minority. Could you please take care of him, right? Because we we, we are not equipped to deal with this. Um, and therefore, in this program, we always have two teachers and a social worker um, available. And then the last project he did was a winged man, uh, all in pink, of course. And he was able to explain that he is different um, and that that is who he is. So I hope we've done him a service and not a disservice. Um, I don't know. He's graduated into secondary school now, and unfortunately, I, we've lost track. But this is one thing about the arts that bring things out of people's system, for better or for worse, because it can get messy. The ironic thing is his, he, his father, single parent, is a huge six-footer, <clears throat> very macho. <clears throat> excuse me, um, and I don't think he knows. But I think that's up to the boy and his father. At the end of um, the year, we would have um, assessment or even interim, and we would ask, instead of, oh, I'm giving you six out of ten marks, we would actually ask the kids, out of ten, what would you give yourself? 
Mm. And if the child said seven, then the next question would be, why did you deduct three points? Because that is the interesting answer, not why you gave yourself seven. And often through their deduction, we would understand how they think about themselves and how we could um, improve our teaching uh, the next time round. A lot of them, they have to write reflections and, and there were some that really changed. There were some that were slower. We don't pretend to guarantee change. I mean, that's not like, you know, what, what we're into, we don't have a warranty card. Um, but they do say that they now know how to look at things from different perspective. That asking questions is a very important thing. There was this one girl whom I still keep in touch with. She's in second year university now. And she wrote a piece back to say that even now when she's out on the streets looking at busking or looking at different things, she would begin to ask herself questions. And therefore, through this process, which started with the arts in our classroom, she's able to engage critically to the extent that her, her, her secondary school teachers could not help her. So in a way, those who are, are those who do take off on their own, it's self-directed learning, which mm. seriously, I think any teacher, any successful teacher would hope for. So that one day, you know, I'm not needed anymore. You know, they go off and do their own thinking. That's so, a very humane and humble process. Um, what was the the relationship with funders and have you have you noticed any sort of change in what funders looked out for because i think the the conventional is always that you know funders are going to look out for numbers you know the, the more the numbers the merrier it is but as as you've mentioned from the beginning you know you get the numbers but you can't get the depth of impact and it's uh, what's realistic to accommodate is not that many in terms of the figures and uh, do you notice more and more funders understanding that and being more generous with funding for this kind of work? Well, obviously, I don't know every funder in Hong Kong, mm -hmm. not even the majority, but from word of mouth and from what I see, generally, it's still quantitative. It's still numbers. Because, look, if you're a corporation, if you're a foundation, you have stakeholders or you have investors, right? And how would investors understand what their ROI is? Immediately, it's tangibility, immediately it's numbers. So I think it is quite natural that the majority still look at numbers. Therefore, we work with a, a small handful of others. And even then, a lot of persuasion um, needs, to, uh, needs to, be, to be done. The way around it is before they might be called funders or sponsors, now some of them prefer to call themselves strategic partners so that they are involved in building the project as well. So with this uh, Smart Youth Program I discussed, it was a foundation and I was very involved with the founder. And, and, and um, bless her, Jean Ho, she said, I don't want numbers, I want impact. So she has been the first person to say this to me, which is totally marvelous. Then another founder, uh, another foundation, they funded a teenage program called Bravo Hong Kong Youth Theatre Awards for 13 to 18 year olds. They also didn't want huge numbers. They understood the depth of what we did. But they did ask, so how are you going to assess the impact? And one thing we did, again, with much discomfort, but I thought 
let's go ahead, let's do it. And with our own funding and with our own money, not funders, I um, I brought in an external evaluator, a pair, Jennifer and William. And I said, look, these are the KPIs. These kids are acting in Hong Kong, being trained. I want to know longitudinally through these one and a half years from Hong Kong all the way to London and all the way to Taipei because they split into different uh, streams one and a half years later. Can this be done statistically? Can this be done in terms of figures that funders will go, oh, I see, <laughs> you know. So we actually did that. And uh, although it was only with less than 50 kids, very, very small numbers, that wasn't the point. The point was we did surveys and we did uh, in, 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 uh, uh, focus interviews. We tracked them through reflections all the way back from London and Taipei for one and a half years. And lo and behold, uh, I mean, if this is not a book podcast, I could show you the bar charts. So we looked at 20 KPIs, which in retail space, far, far too many. And before and after at different phases of the program, plus be attitudinal change and behavioral change. And there were items that were statistically significant. There were items that were not. But I think I was quite pleased because we broke that glass ceiling. We said we would try and do it, and we showed it to the sponsor, and immediately they understood. Uh, again, the next round, when we did the next cohort, we wanted to do this, but then COVID came around, so <laughs> that was that. <laughs> but it is possible. It's a lot of hard work, which needs a lot of resources, and it needs longitudinal projects. Over one workshop, yes, of course you can do that, but Seriously, I would be kidding you if I said I made any change in one workshop. I usually end off the podcast with this question. Um, what is one thing that someone can do to create change in this world? But with the conversation that we've had, I want to focus it a little bit. Um, what is one thing on the macro system scale that someone can do, be it a funder or a policymaker or government, public uh, sector? What is one thing that someone in there can do to make your job and life easier. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Um, give the time to seriously listen. Visit the projects that you fund regularly because you have to be there to see things, to understand the change. Too many only focus on products. Too few focus on the processes which if dealt with well, will lead to a meaningful product. If anyone would like to learn more about FTech, uh, go to the website aftec.hk. Um, I will also share the link on the episode description notes. Thank you so much, Lynn, for your time. Lovely. Thank you so much, Fie. Hello Onions Talk listeners, thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, it would really help if you can leave a review on iTunes or like us on Facebook. Otherwise, subscribe and share it with people whom you think will enjoy this. Special thanks to Andre for the music. Catch you next episode.